1: Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you're listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel in the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you would love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btofer@toferarchitecture.com. at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Stephen Murray to talk about his book, Notre Dame at Amiens, Life of the Gothic Cathedral. Stephen is Lisa and Bernard Seltz Professor of Medieval Art History Emeritus at Columbia University. Thank you for being here with me today. Welcome to the show.
0: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So
1: before I begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself?
0: Well, I've uh, been a professor now for close to 50 years. Actually, I I retired um, almost three years ago, but um, it's 49 years of teaching. And um, a lot of students have been been the luckiest professor in the world, uh, 50 or so graduate students over those years, and a kind of intense... Relationship uh, with a series of cathedrals, um, uh, four of them over the years, and um, with the, comp- the compulsion of going back and back and back at every opportunity and um, immersing myself. You put yourself in the building and you put the building into your head. Absolutely. <laughs> and it has been the most fabulous uh, privilege. Uh, Amiens has been with me all my life, actually, but um, uh, also I've worked on, on Trois Cathedral and Beauvais and on Notre Dame of Paris, and um, that's uh, obviously a hot topic right now. Absolutely.
1: We'll Um, definitely talk about that one.
0: Yeah, but um, it's EMIER, which um, really stole my heart uh, many years ago, and um, uh, this is uh, actually the third book I've done on EMIER, and um, I'm looking forward to chatting about it.
1: Yes, me too. And so first question, we'll just kind of jump right into it. So, you know, you've kind of mentioned this. There's a lot of historic, culturally significant buildings. So why this specific one? Why? And you've you've mentioned you've done multiple books. Why Notre Dame at Amiens?
0: That's, again, something that goes back um, more more than 50 years. And um, there are several strands to the story. Um, I'm not sure if you can see this image here. I'm going to hold it up. Can you see that? Yes. Yeah. That, that's one strand of the story. That's me setting out on my matchless 500 motorcycle from my home in England. Interesting. And, um, I grew up in England. I was a student at Oxford and then in London, the University of London. But at a very early age, I, I got um, passionate about motorcycles and um, getting away from England. So I put my, my bike on the ferry at um, New Haven and crossed to Dieppe and uh, found my liberty on the other side. And Amiens is, for any Englishman, undertaking that uh, first uh, point of call. There was a youth hostel there I used to stay in. Uh, that was one strand. Another strand is a very memorable visit in 1969 with my teacher, uh, Peter Kaysen, and the, the students, my fellow students from the Courtauld Institute uh, in London. And we went there one snowy Easter and um, had a very, very memorable session, a seminar in the and um, uh, unforgettable, that that, that uh, one day's day. Stay. Then yet a third strand is when I came to Columbia University in 1986, that's 35 years ago, um, I discovered to my delight that Amiens was the prescribed work of art to represent a thousand years of medieval artistic production in the Columbia Core Curriculum. And uh, students are obliged to take this course. And of course, it gives you a wonderful captive audience and uh, every professor loves that uh, and it was a real incentive to try and develop ways of representing that cathedral that went beyond the old-fashioned slides. Well
1: it's funny you mention that so yeah so I'm talking about the format of the book you, you know I, I, there's a lot of unique architectural methods but usually it's a lot of you know drawings and then kind of explaining it whereas you take on a much much more different approach in the book. And so i would like to hear you explain it a little more to us but instead of analyzing it like an object you everything is described as if you're moving throughout and looking at it and i believe you even used the term from socrates the inner locator i'm sure yeah the
0: The one who who stands and points and talks (laughs) um, the discipline of art history likes to dress itself up with all kind of philosophical underpinnings and so on but in the end what is the art historian The art historian is somebody who stands and points (laughs) and talks. And um, they they somehow think that they, the art historian somehow thinks that they have the ability to make the work of art speak and that they alone can uh, give that work of art a a voice. The work of art is dumb. The cathedral doesn't actually have words to speak to you. So the interlocutor is the one that makes the cathedral speak. Now, I had a kind of startling realisation of how outrageous a notion that is, this came to me a number of years ago, in which I, I, I realized that uh, we're not making the work of art speak, the work of art is making us speak. And uh, we are representing that work of art, but we have no contract with it. <laughs> <laughs> the building never asked me to say a word. So the first uh, prerequisite is humility, I think. And the second prerequisite is to endeavor not to kill the building you love. And I, I'm afraid we're very good at doing that. And the written page, the book, can do it very successfully. Cathedrals do, cathedrals do not go into books so easily.
1: <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned that, though. I th- I, th- yeah. I think you did a great job explaining it. And there's a lot to, to see and hear. So to anyone listening, I would recommend reading it as well. And so, you know, you, you mentioned uh, sometimes it's tough to explain a building in a book. And I know one topic that's always brought up in books that focus on a certain building is the idea of transformation and how it changes. Whereas in this, it's a little different because while you do talk about how it changes over time, there's quite a bit of transportation, transformation and movement just in the building itself, not over a period of time.
0: Yes. And, uh, oh, go ahead. Well, that, that leads to another one of these realizations that um, it, it, we talk about transformation and change uh, in the building. And yet, for the most part, that building hasn't changed at all. It's exactly as they built it 800 years ago. It's had its 800th birthday. What's changing um, is in your head as you move through it. And essentially what you're doing is collecting memory images. You're, You're stamping your brain with images of what you've just seen. And as you move forward and keep looking for new images, you say, oh, look, that does not correspond to what is already in my head. And that's exactly what happens at when you're walking down the nave, you suddenly reach a point where you say, oh, it's changed. No, it hasn't actually changed, it's what it always was, but what you're seeing does not correspond anymore to what you saw back there. So a building is a fabulous mechanism, uh, a mechanism to induce us uh, to see change as though the building is transforming itself before our very eyes. Uh, A building is a vehicle for miracles, in other words, miraculous transformation
1: that's a great quote and so kind of to elaborate on that you you specifically talk about the fact that many users who are in the building have this tension of whether or not they should move forward or linger yes yeah you know, again maybe i'll mispronounce this the idea of ductus and stasis kind of that's it that's it and so you know that's very interesting to hear about especially because again not being in the building and i'm sure many of our listeners have not been in there I, i'm curious to hear how how does the building achieve that I think a lot of architects want that in their own buildings.
0: Yeah. Um, the building that you uh, achieved it, I, I'll talk specifically about Amia. I, I would suggest in, in two ways. Uh, uh, firstly, in setting up a, a truly spectacular and mind boggling space frame, the frame for space and light, which really uh, impinges uh, very, very directly on our senses. Um, and as we move through the building, you'll sense that space and that light is changing, especially as I've said repeatedly in my book, when you reach the middle of the church, in medieval ecclesia, in the middle of the church, there is that miraculous transformation. Suddenly the building is full of light. The second way uh, is in the articulation, the details, the capitals, the the base molding profiles, um, the shapes of the windows, the window tracery. Uh, There again, uh, you will, Fix a particular form in your head. For example, the, the, the lower nave aisle windows were very simple, um, simple oculus over two lancets. Then you get to the choir and say, Oh, look, the shape of the window is different. Uh, there are three little oculi. Um, so the details can be a vehicle for change. But I think it's the bigger one, it's the whole massive space frame with the light that um, is the most powerful.
1: And you you bring up, you know, light and glass. And so I know one thing that stuck out to me that was very interesting is I think a lot of us assume these churches look the same way they did hundreds of years ago and that everything is the way where you actually mentioned the fact that, you know, one of the features a lot of people love about the building, the amount of light coming in through the clear glass is not natural because of vandalism, changing of taste and natural disasters. This was actually not how it was originally intended. And I, you know, again, I know I personally thought that the, all those classic churches look the same way they've done over the hundreds of years, when the reality is it isn't. And I'm sure you have plenty of other examples of that in the building.
0: Yes, this was partly deliberate in the 18th century. The canons, the clergy, uh, in the Siècle des Lumières, they loved light. And, for example, the north um, choir aisle was dark because there wasn't adjacent sacristy that blocked the windows. They knocked it down. And that was the place where the head of John Baptist existed. And similarly, a lot of the glass was deeply saturated, colored glass, which was, which was removed. Um, but then uh, we've also got to recognize that the, the bits of original glass in the upper choir um, are actually much brighter than um, the early glass in the nave. There right. is a, a trend in the 1260s or so, do you remember, and begins in the 1220s. Uh, in the 1220s, stained glass is normally deeply saturated, just fields of color, Dominated by blue and red. When you reach the 1260s, um, the field of the, of the window is very often grisaille. It's that silvery grey glass with an right. that colored image. And that's what they're doing. And had those choir windows all survived, um, they would have looked like that. Right. Whereas certainly in the lower nave, so, so already in the building there was that light transformation, but certainly it's enhanced by the vandalism that you mentioned there are a bunch of accidents storms blow the windows out um so it's it's all of
1: the above yeah and another interesting point in that and so there's two things I'd love to kind of tangent off of there the one you had mentioned you know a lot of the building materials particularly masonry there's a lot of records a lot of detail whereas when it comes to stained glass which in my mind would be the most expensive and Mm time-consuming part it seems like it's not very well recorded and kept track of you, uh, you bring up in the book that it's mostly d- donations from wealthy families, mm-hmm. but in terms of who built it, how it was built, that's kind of being lost over time. Am I understanding that correctly? Oh,
0: absolutely. What, what we do not have for Amiens are the fabric accounts, the right. building accounts. Um, my first work on Gothic was on those accounts, but that was for Trois Cathedral. Uh, there's one particular year for which a building account exists uh, for Amiens, and it's 1357. And in that uh, one year, the name of the glazier is actually recorded. It's Master William Gillilmes, and uh, he is busy at work. uh, I think probably on the um, upper transept windows, and uh, that's the only record we have of the the identity of a glazier.
1: It seems you read my mind on the other point I wanted to bring up, something for me that I did, was not aware of, and I'm, I think a lot of other listeners would love to hear, is the idea of the fabric, as you talked about. And so I was, I was hoping you could elaborate a little more on that and how it relates to how the building was actually constructed.
0: Well, um, I, I guess part of my mission as an art historian is to pursue the historical underpinnings of artistic production. And in order to create a cathedral, Uh, Art historians, especially German theorists, had talked a great deal about some kind of force out there as though Gothic uh, exists out there and the cathedrals are struggling to become more Gothic. Um, I, on the other hand, right from the start, looked for the human mechanism. It's partly my training at Oxford. The people I worked with there were really, in a sense, Marxian thinkers, Uh, not Marxist, Marxist, but Marxian, looking for the economic underpinnings of production and I worked at Oxford on agrarian production, um, grain uh, Mm farms, land, and it was very easy to go from that to stone production. And I found to my delight, um, this vast cache of uh, building accounts with all the sums of money that were spent on uh, on stone purchases, producing the stone, on the labor, uh, the artisans, on the master masons and so on. And I plotted these accounts over 300 years and this was my doctoral dissertation uh, at uh, London, and my very first book, which in some ways is my favorite book, uh, was uh, telling the story of the Cathedral of Troyes, uh, that's T-R-O-Y-E-S, Troyes, using these uh, fabulous building accounts and making a kind of almost statistical tracking mechanism to watch the the, the workshop changing over time.
1: Right, and so am I understanding that there are dedicated clergy members who take on the role of maintaining the building, overseeing construction. Am I understanding that correctly?
0: That's it. Uh, In France, that person would be called a proviseur, a provider. In England, um, the term sacristan uh, was sometimes used. Uh, Normally, it's a canon. That's to say a regular member of the clergy. And uh, it would be somebody who loves buildings, certainly. And he would be appointed for a term as proviseur, sometimes also called master of the works. Mm-hmm. That's another, maître de l'œuvre, maître de l'ouvrage. Those terms, uh, maître de l'œuvre, that can be a little bit ambiguous because that can also be the mason. The terms are not altogether precise in the Middle Ages. They tend to be a bit soft-edged. But absolutely, as a member of the clergy, the dean, that's the head of the chapter, that's mm-hmm. the head of the chapter, becomes very involved uh, in the fabric, in the work. Uh, he is nominally the supervisor of everything, not the bishop. Uh, the bishop is away a great deal, and he doesn't normally get very involved. And as you probably noticed at the end of my book, uh, there's a particular dean that I identified with furiously. Um, when I say furiously, I mean energetically, passionately, and his name was Adriane de Enoncur. And um, like me, he was a younger son, and I guess like me, I felt kind of useless at home yeah. um, <laughs> and had to go and do things, you know, and, and, and make things different. But anyway, he... Um, uh, Unexpectedly, his elder brother died, and he became very rich. And in the meantime, is in the church as a as a member of the clergy. Uh, he is the most powerful figure behind the fabric of the cathedrals uh, in the late and Middle Ages. And it's,
1: like it's, yeah, so like I say, it's very interesting that you know, I, I think a present day concept that we would be familiar with is you know construction superintendent or facilities manager. And so the fact that the building, you know, obviously these churches don't happen overnight. This one in particular was constructed for a very long time. And so I assume that there's turnover in these dedicated clergy members. Would that be an effect on why there is some changes and transformation and not uniformity in the church?
0: That's a good point. I think that's partly it. I think the clergy had their opinions about architecture. Mm -hmm. They were just passive enablers. I think they did have their opinions. And that could be an attendant circumstance. But the argument I make at Amiens is that you actually can, in the main period of construction that runs from 1220 down to the late uh, 1200s, in that main period, you can discern three distinct approaches that you can probably associate with the named masons of the cathedral. And Amiens, of all those cathedrals, is about the only one where you can be fairly certain to be able to distinguish particularly one of the masons, the last mason, whose name was Renaud de Como Renaud de Como you can know with absolute certainty that he was the one that did the upper choir and introduced those skinny flying buttresses. Uh, the front jacket of my book.
1: Right.
0: Uh, I, I'm very proud of that photograph. I took that photograph. Yes, that's, sure. that's the work of Renaud de Como And there was skinny, openwork flyers. That's Renaud de Coman, and. Uh, uh, we know simply because um, there's a, a 1260 uh, uh, document that names him as Master Mason, and we know that, um, exactly what was going on in the cathedral in 1260, because there was a fire in the building in 1258, right. which left its scorch marks on the stones. So it's a fabulous piece of physical evidence. <laughs> uh, you can see the scorched stones, and you know that what was done after that was certainly the work of René de And uh, you can be fairly certain about what Robert of Lusage, the founding master, did. Uh, I made an assumption um, that the second one, Thomas, who actually probably did more of the physical building than any of the other two, uh, was uh, Robert's uh, apprentice, companion, and the two came together. And uh, uh, Robert of Lusage was probably an old man when he started, and he had his companion continue after he died. So it's exciting. uh, for me, as a historian, uh, because buildings don't always lend themselves to <laughs> intense reading, but to find those three individuals in the building gave me great joy. I, I, and It's very
1: interesting. I want to come back to the Masons, but something I do want to talk about when you showed us the cover of the book, you brought up the idea, the, the concept of using physical evidence to kind of date certain parts. It, it, did I understand correctly that the buttresses actually started to structurally fail at one point, so they had to be added on to? Yes, yes. It's precisely
0: those scheme of flyers that I just pointed to. Right. Um, uh, and those were the invention of um, René de Comand, and they were fashionable uh, in, a uh, towards um, uh, uh, 1250 or so. Other buildings are doing the same, or the builders of other cathedrals are using the same kind of flyer. Uh, the, the Cathedral of Troyes, for example, has had those same flyers in the choir. Um, but it's, it's curious, because in a number of buildings, uh, Gothic cathedrals, Uh, the builders made the flying buttress a little bit too high right? in in, in where they butt because the vault wants to push outwards and because these buttresses are very linear there's not a whole lot of mass you can't afford to make mistakes and they'd be placed a little bit too high uh, for the arrival of the thrust Mm -hmm. and all they had to do was stick another one underneath and that, that was done in the late middle ages.
1: And I bring that up because one thing, again, what I found very interesting is, again, when you look, at least in my opinion, when you look at the church, it does look like a unified church. It looks like it was done in one design, one phase, when the reality is that's not true. They've added, they've changed, it's altered. And so, you know, I know that's one takeaway. I know there's plenty of other examples, so I would urge anyone to read to hear about them as well. What I wanted to go back to is about the the Masons, though. Again, another thing, I bring up everything that I wasn't aware of that I find interesting, is you, you bring up the fact that, uh, you know, particularly master masons, more so than today's age, they were regarded pretty highly. And, you know, you, you compare them that uh, sort of the master masons or contract, I'm sorry, uh, carpenters were almost at the level of the clergy. And, yes. And so I'd love to hear a little bit more about that and how, you know, it was quite a bit different for them versus the laborers working under them.
0: Yes. Well, it's, it's been a mistake on the part of art um, historians to talk about the workshop. Uh it, using that word, we, do we think we know what a workshop is? And what I discovered through my careful work on the building accounts at Troyes is the, the workshop was extremely stratified. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, the, at the top, there were a bunch of elite that were, that were earning much, much more. And, and they normally came from elsewhere. And um, uh, they come, might come from a major city like Paris or Reims um, into a lesser important one. And... Uh, at the very top of the uh, workshop in Troyes was a guy called Martin Chambige. He had a contract and he had a, he, he received an annual salary that was a very generous one. His salary was probably just about equal of what a clergyman would receive in their annual payment or, or they received a pre-bend, um, mm-hmm. an annual prebend, uh, And so financially, uh, uh, the, the master mason would be on a par. They would live in the area of the clergy. We know that... Um, right that uh, uh, René de Cormont had a house in the metz uh, close to the bishop's palace. Uh, the ordinary artisans would live in the, you know, in the poorer part of town, but that's all to do with economics. But to do with um, ideas and, and spirituality, there is an amazing image that gets reproduced very often up from one of the moralized Bibles of the 13th century, where God is depicted with a pair of compasses or a pair of dividers. So God, of course, the Earth being spherical, how did God design the Earth other than with a pair of uh, compasses or or dividers? And so the whole idea of the master mason as God, uh, in the image of God, was an idea that was was very um, um, widely spread in um, uh, twelfth and thirteenth century minds.
1: Very interesting. And so there, I know there's plenty of other, you know, concepts and anecdotes. I'd, I'd love to go through them all, but I hate to keep you all day. There is one question I thought was very interesting at the end of the book, and I'd love to hear your take on it a little more. You bring up the the question that has and has been kind of debated: and the idea that does the does liturgy affect Gothic design and architecture?
0: Uh, yes, yeah, yeah.
1: I, I know that's a very big question to kind of ask you to explain to us, but I would like to hear your opinion on that.
0: There are some obvious senses where it does. Um, For example, the provision of chapel space. Uh, Chapels become increasingly common in in Gothic Mm -hmm. churches. And then the addition of chapels down the flank of the building. Uh, Notre Dame of Paris was the first Mm -hmm. to do that, beginning in the 1220s. Liturgically, what that does um, is it provides a space for normally a wealthy member of the townsfolk, of the member of the clergy, to be buried, and to have special masses. Mm-hmm. The technical term would be burial ad sanctos, burial near the saints, because the, the presence of the saints is there in the cathedral. So that the plan of the building with its chapels is one way in which liturgy is going to affect it. Also, you could say that processions are important, because the favourite processional route, one of them, uh, in the 12th and 13th centuries was a circle and there's a very famous quotation from abbot Suger uh, of saint-denis that describes the consecration ceremony of the cathedral in which all the clergy in their sumptuous robes are describing a great circular procession around the space of the choir mm-hmm. and uh, the space of the choir at saint-denis is designed around a circle you, know, you architecturally you stick your stake your iron stake in the ground, you decide what length of cable or Mm. or rope you wish to have, you have a sharp instrument and you describe a circle. And that is the most powerful human device, in a sense, to appropriate space and to make it sacred, and to make it um, uh, special. I mean, we just think of Stonehenge. So you go go all the way back to prehistoric uh, uh, um, human beings, and all the way through, myself i'm a bit of a builder and um, i love building things and i don't know right outside there there's my little circle i, I set up
1: <laughs> it looks like a circle
0: yeah well that's the magnolia petals on it yeah. but but, but, but uh, my, my wife and my daughter and i laid that thing out and looks st- great taking a great central iron stake in and god it was fun to do and then we, we laid the bricks and now it's overlaid with magnolia we've got a magnolia tree there so um uh, circles are important just as a basic human form of appropriation of space and making it special. They're important as a, a liturgical movement, and of course, they come in architecture. Nearly all cathedrals have a circular, all French ones do. Absolutely. What that does for you, if you are going to go back to my ductus notion, is as you enter the West End, everything is receding as orthogonals towards. A vanishing point mm-hmm. is the vanishing point, it's somewhere lost in the hemicycle because when you get down there, you'll find that the horizontal receding lines, when you get down into the, the east end, are made vertical. Right, because the whole thing is designed around that hidden center point, and suddenly everything rotates. Now, you can make your own conclusions about what that does in terms of spirituality, uh, linking heaven with earth, and so on. Uh, so, there, lit- liturgy and um architectural form come very, very close together.
1: Great. Uh, great answer for me putting you on the spot with such a big idea.
0: <laughs> and
1: so kind of my, one of my last things I always like to close this out with, you already hinted at it already. I'd love to hear more about it is, you know, since the book has come out, what, had, you know, what projects have you been on? What's been taking up your time? You had hinted at working with Notre Dame of Paris as well.
0: Yes, uh, Notre Dame of Paris has been my main occupation. But I've got to express obviously a certain sadness about what we've all come through as human beings in the last year and you know when I retired I'd assume I'd have a kind of grey presence in my department down at Columbia and yeah. uh, I have my parking spot there. Do you know I still have my office there but I've, not been, right? I've not been there for over a year Um, so i would intended to go on developing um, for example the mapping gothic website and um, to go on with, with uh, that kind of work but in the meantime I I got appointed on to the board of um, the Friends of Notre Dame of Paris. That's a fundraising organization. It was set up partly by my former student, um, um, Andrew Tallon, and um, we've been very successful in raising a a great deal of money for the reconstruction of Notre Dame. Great. So most recently what I've been doing is is working on an animation, an animated construction sequence um, uh, that shows how the building goes up. And actually, tomorrow, um, uh, Thursday, the French embassy and I uh, are doing an event in which this construction animation will be shown. You can find the animation, if you want, on the Friends of Notre Dame website. Great. So uh, uh, this is a SketchUp animation. I'm not good at at doing this myself, so I have the help of a former student, my best best former student, Miles Zhang. Miles Zhang is my animator,
1: and he and I work very, very happily together. Great. I will absolutely, and I'll make sure to put a link of that to to this when it goes live. Beautiful. Well, I want to thank you again for taking the time to talk with me today. Okay, Brian. It was a great pleasure. And to everyone listening, the book is Notre Dame of Amiens, Life of the Gothic Cathedral. Thank you, and have a great day.
0: Thank you.